Welcome to Actualize, a podcast focused on the intersection of performance, ambition, and mental health. I'm your host, Rob Pintuala. My goal for the show is to not only celebrate success, but also shed light on the challenges and sacrifices that come with ambition. Actualize is brought to you by First Session. Launched in 2019, I started First Session to help you find the right therapist. First Session is purposely designed more like a dating website than a clinical website, as we're completely focused on helping you find the right fit the first time. My team and I interview and vet our partner therapists, so you can simply browse videos, see who you vibe with, and instantly book a session. Check us out at firstsession.com and see why more than 7,000 Canadians have chosen First Session to find a therapist. This episode is with Jill Van Jean. Jill is most well-known for being the CEO of Fatso Peanut Butter, which she built and sold after almost seven years. However, Jill's story goes far beyond peanut butter. Jill is a mother, a partner, a community builder, an advocate, and a volunteer and philanthropist. In this episode, we discuss Jill's battle with addiction and her long journey to getting sober. We also discuss the immense challenges she had with pregnancy loss and infertility. And we talk about the concept of feeling deserving as a person and how this belief has caused Jill a lot of stress in the past. This is the most open and vulnerable conversation I've had on this podcast to date. And my hope is that anyone who is struggling with substance abuse, infertility, or building a business while simultaneously building a family can gain inspiration like I did from Jill. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Jill, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure. Hey, Rob. I We met about a year ago, I think, at a lunch here in Victoria, BC. And one of the conversations got into some deep mental health related stuff. Maybe that was based on me sharing. But about a year ago, that clicked on me. And I was like, I'm going to start this podcast. And I really want to chat with you because you are so open and your story is incredible. So I was so excited to hear more about it. And luckily, I didn't hear that much of it. So here we are today. And I'd love to maybe start by you explaining a little bit more about maybe your professional life in recent years and uh, what that journey has looked like just to provide some context before we dive in way deeper. Yeah. So yeah, I just sold a company that I had spent six or seven years building called Fatso Peanut Butter. I started that company back in 2016. It was a really interesting part of my life because it was really born out of a series of frustrations, finding like professional footing and, and I'm sure we'll get into this, uh, getting sober and you know, going back and trying to keep some promises I had made to myself before addiction had taken hold of my life. And so I had built this incredible company and I think a lot of people will know that like COVID hit so many companies really hard. For us, it was a banner year. It was the ensuing years that really took a toll. Uh, and I made the really difficult decision to to walk away uh, before it got like hyper damaging. And uh, yeah, it's a much longer story, but we had some really successful years and we made huge impacts through some of our social work and our impact that we had built into the company, social justice and uh, environmental justice. 
and a whole bunch of other things. So, you know, we left a really solid legacy behind. But yeah, it's been a very interesting year to leave that behind and to embark on something new, which remains to be seen. <laughs> I love it in the top-down hindsight view. A couple more <laughs> questions about Fatso. So yeah, I definitely have heard of the product years before I met you. And many friends really love the product. We're advocating for the product. And it, uh, it was amazing to, to put the face to the name. Now, yeah. I'd love to talk a little bit more about how it got started and also more about some of these initiatives you were speaking about, environmental and social. Yeah. 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 So the cold notes on it, because like, I mean, I can do a deep dive into this and this one thing in particular, but yeah, I got sober in 2010 and very interesting six years that followed that. I was 30. I was living in a government funded recovery house and you know, I had these very big ambitions for myself. I had wanted to work for the UN. I studied political science. And when I got sober, I thought, okay, this is my opportunity to really go after the things that I had wanted to do when I was a little bit younger. And so I enrolled in a master's program in uh, human security and peace building and went to northern Uganda and did my research and published a paper and graduated at the top of my class. And I kind of thought, like, this is it. Like, I'm going to walk into any organization and get this job. And that just really wasn't the case. And what I found really interesting was there's a lot of promises that are made just socially. We have these like interesting little social promises, right? You go on, you get a higher education and you are then equipped to go get a job. And I think that things have changed super dramatically in the past like 10, 20 years around what qualifies you for a job and what people are actually looking for and then what we're told to execute on. So I found myself in this really strange position where I wasn't getting any jobs and uh, everybody wanted the master's degree plus 10 years of experience. And I just felt very disillusioned with some of these social promises. Mm -hmm. I also in the process managed to get very disillusioned with both academia and international development, which were the two things that I had pinned my hopes on was like, if one didn't work out, then I just go to academics and vice versa. So I found myself at this really straining crossroads where I was now 35 and had this master's degree. And I was like, I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do with my life because I did all the things. Like I got sober and I met this wonderful partner and we had gotten married and we bought a house. And I was like on my way to this incredible career and just like fell apart. And that's so to get to the point was really born out of this deep frustration that I felt. And like, I've always been the type of person like I need to be producing and be productive. And I'm constantly at odds with that because I also think that not to get too far down this rabbit hole, but I think it's a deep product of living in a capitalist society where it's like you always have to be producing. But I am quite happy when I am productive. So I just I found this amazing like little peanut butter product. I was working at a health food restaurant trying to help franchise it and it was called Fatso. And I was like, first of all, this name is great because it was like filled with plant-based fats and it tasted amazing and it didn't have any sugar and it had these chia seeds and flax. It was just like, it was the total package and it was just being run into the ground. And I just got really fixated on the product and through a series of 
unfortunate events for the previous owners and fortunate events for me, the, uh, the product needed to be sold quickly. And I snapped it up for about the price of a used car. And I just set about trying to figure out how to build the peanut butter brand. I had no experience, but I knew that if I could get people to take the product, that I would be able to sell the product. That was the experience that I was having with people in my life was like, as soon as they tasted it, they were sold. And so I spent two years demoing in stores every single weekend, driving to like Nanaimo, Vancouver, Whistler, Kelowna. Like I was all over the place and the product was just like a runaway hit. And we enjoyed a ton of very early success. And one of the things that I had promised myself once I started to see that the product was actually moving was if I ever have any success with this, I'm actually still going to go back and make good on those promises that I made to myself. Mm. And we started small and we started, and by we, I mean the peanut butter in me because it was just, just me for two years. Um, I started to really think critically about how I could get involved with impact work. And I ended up doing a little fundraiser and donating about $1,500 to a local organization called Peers, which is a sex worker rights advocacy group, like a peer run uh, nonprofit. And they deal a lot with like mainly with like sex work, but like the intersect of sex work and like harm reduction and homelessness and queer rights and indigenous rights. It's just like there was this beautiful intersect of everything in the organization and so i you know we're going to donate things to peers and the executive director reached out and said we'd love to take you for lunch because we've never had a public facing company donate this amount of money and i thought that is absolutely incredible because why i mean why not right mm -hmm. but people just don't they tend to not want to be associated with things like sex work and it taught me a super valuable lesson is that in impact work, what we're seeking to do is take a dollar amount or a resource amount and make it go farthest in a way of like supporting our community. And my dollars and my effort towards that organization went so much further than it would have with a large national nonprofit. Mm -hmm. So I really started like using that as a mandate to identify like where were organizations being missed, who was being missed in the conversation, how do we support those voices, who is marginalized and who is not getting what they need. And we always went back to those sort of that mandate to identify partners that we would work with. So working with like very taboo subjects, um, harm reduction and addiction and um, mental health issues and sex work and issues of race and um, inequality, taking positions that people normally wouldn't want to get behind so vocally as a public facing company that's main objective is to bring revenue. Um, but we found that people really resonated with us using our platform in this way. And while I'm sure some people dropped off, we just have extremely loyal consumers come along on the journey with us and contribute and support us so that we could then support other organizations and individuals and causes that were highly marginalized. So we had done a lot of impact work around trans rights and the Black Lives Matter movement, Indigenous sovereignty, and sex work. A lot of those issues are something that public-facing companies don't 
love to get involved with, but that was really where we wanted to be firmly placed. And I'm really, in hindsight, now that I've left the company, like the peanut butter is great. But what we did, that to me is the legacy and the thing I'm most proud of. I continue to do that work. I actually am a board member at Piers now and have for three years and continue to do other volunteer work and am always looking for, you know, opportunities to bring those aspects into other organizations. Just a quick interruption to chat about my company first session. Have you had a less than ideal experience looking for a therapist? There are lots of options out there, but it's hard to know where to get started and who to trust. My company first session focuses entirely on creating the best experience finding a therapist. We vet and verify each therapist we work with, interview them on camera, and allow you to browse on your own time to see who you vibe with. You can see updated availability and book directly with them. No phone calls, no email back and forth. Run through videos and find the right therapist for you the first time at firstsession.com. That's incredible. That's incredible. I think when I bought Fatso product years ago, I did not know it was contributing to these causes. So that is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to. So you, Piers was the first one, it sounds like, and there was many no, others. Um, I'd love to just take a step back and yeah, dive in a little bit more about the addiction or mm-hmm. getting sober, that process. Like you strike me as someone who's got a lot of energy and you know, you're directing it towards some incredible places. And yeah. how did that look when you were struggling more? Yeah, you know, it's so hard to understand who I was then. Looking back on my addiction, I've battled a lot with not trying to dwell on what could have been. For me, addiction was, I mean, it was a really classic story. Like, I come from a really privileged background, and I've always had the support of my parents, even though with addiction, parents in the 90s, like, what are you going to do, right? Like it's, you know, they don't, they didn't have the tools that people have today, but there also wasn't the drugs that we have today, right? Mm-hmm. So I think parents were faced with different challenges. So I would say that I would have approached having a child addiction might differently, but my parents really struggled with that. And I think there's a lot of expectation on their end about what I was going to be. And I think that instilled like a lot of like very deep regret, anxiety, and like this real fear of never being successful, which it's not a great place to be when you're in addiction because you just like you just use to avoid all of that. Mm. And I was it was interesting. I was my most productive even during my addiction was when I was in school. I've always been attracted to a highly structured environment. And I found that like I really did OK while I was like in school. But you know, the last five years of my addiction were the heaviest and the scariest and an interesting experience with getting sober. And I took a crack at it once, went to rehab and promptly went out and used again. It's almost hard. It's hard to speak of because I've, I've removed myself from that active experience. Mm-hmm. But when people look at me, they do not know that I was deeply suicidal and I was using not just every day, but, you know, from the time I got up until the time I was no longer able to like either passed out or whatever. And in so much turmoil, 
and pain that like it was almost there was this sort of like I was forced into rehab because of pretty dire situation. What I found interesting was when I got out of treatment and immediately started to use again was that it took me about seven weeks to absolutely wipe out the time that I had spent sober in rehab um, and become so ill and incapable of functioning in such a fast period of time. And I had a an experience and like I have been, you know, I was a long time member of 12-step programs and I've shared this experience publicly before, but I had this moment where I, about 10 o'clock in the morning and I crashed my vehicle very close to my uh, grandmother's house. She was no longer living there, but it was in like a childhood neighborhood and I was arrested. And I had a cop's knee in my bed and I was handcuffed and I had this like brief moment of clarity, which for the first time in my life, the idea using again was scarier than trying to get clean. And that to me, it was a very small shift, but I will never forget it. It's a very like, it's a very sensory memory for me because there was like just this like brief moment of clarity where I was like oh my god like this can't be my life this cannot be how I die and it did last that long because after I got out of jail I went and like picked up again but two weeks later I was back in treatment and I kept on having those flashes like every time I wanted to leave treatment I realized if I left I would die and that fear of using was now greater than the fear of getting clean and that to me was like one of the biggest and most monumental shifts in my life because my natural state was really to be intoxicated in some and fighting against that natural state and understanding that I'm gonna have to do some work to get out of this was really pivotal in in the experience of getting sober so yeah in 2010 I got sober and really had to like start from scratch like every like I don't know you're 30 and you're living in like a government funded recovery house you're just like how did this happen and I just had to really embrace like okay this is what you're gonna have to do right now and this is what you're gonna have to commit to and it was just a recommitment every single day until the training wheels come off a little bit so yeah it was a very difficult time and the life that I built on the other side of that it just feels very in some ways fragmented because I look at who I am. I was funny. I was like writing checks for daycare. And like my like big like accomplishment where it was like, okay, I figured out how to deal with all the piles of laundry. You have to fold it as soon as it comes out of the dryer. And I had this moment where I was like, Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> if these are my problems now, like compared to what they used to be, like who the fuck was that? <laughs> so it's like it. it yeah, it's an interesting experience. <laughs> How you can reset like everyone, right? Like no matter, like it just, your problems reset to where you're at, yes. right? And then, yeah. yeah. So thank you for sharing all that. And it, yeah, it's just hearing the way that you're speaking about it now is just inspiring just to even listen to the way that you're framing it. No, I'm curious in, in terms of like the timeline or regardless of like when, but I'm just curious if there was a, a feeling or some sort of realization that your using turn 
to like dependency? Like, or was it just gradual and like, and, and I'm also yeah. curious, like you've, you mentioned like success earlier and like productivity and things like that. Like, you know, were you always like that? And, and how was your like initial drug use associated with like mm-hmm. success? Like, was there any connection there or like feeling of, I don't know, maybe, yeah. How was it? It was almost the inverted. So like my upbringing, like my parents are both professionals. My dad is a dentist and my mother was a tenured university professor at 30. I mean, they really grew up in a period of time where if you had a university degree, you got a job and you got good jobs. You could like raise a family and do well. And both of them were professionals that excelled in the field. And for all intents and purposes, like we were very bright children, full of potential. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, we weren't stupid kids. And because I'm sorry, I should say, like, I have a twin sister as well who was also an addiction and who was also uh, in recovery. But, you know, I think there was not to like, not to drag my own mother on a public podcast, but <laughs> let me just drag my mother on a public podcast yeah. for a second here. But she is like, her, I mean, it's all based on like these historical experiences, right? Like my mom's experience, you know, I don't want to go back too far into her history, but like what was important to her was like, she was successful in her own turn. She appeared successful. She like, she looked good, dressed appropriately, behaved appropriately. And that come came from like her own sense of having control over her life in her childhood. At least that's what I think. That's what a therapist might tell her if she would ever go to fucking therapy. But <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, it's like one of those things where I think that she just had these expectations like, okay, and it's similar to me, right? Like, I'm going to go get this university career. I'm going to do it despite my upbringing. And I'm going to marry this guy who is a wonderful man and also wants to go after this career. And then we're going to have these kids and we're going to give them every opportunity and they're going to grow up and they're going to be successful. And then I'm going to feel like I repaired my own childhood. And so I think in my view, that's what was the expectation of us. Mm-hmm. But like you've met me, you know my energy and my energy is not like piano lessons and like white dresses. That's not my, that is not my <laughs> brand. Right. So there's a product of like who I am and then also this box that I have to be stuffed into. And if you can, if, the image that comes to mind is like trying to put a feral cat in a box yeah, and carrying that through your life. That's what it was like to have me as a child. So like, cause like, yeah, I'm just constantly fighting against it. Yeah. Right. And like what amazed me and when I think, gave me an enormous amount of confidence was going back to grad school after I got clean to be like, because I never did well in school. I did pretty good in my undergrad, but when I was clean and sober and determined and was like, all right, let me see what Jill can do in an academic setting. And then being like, holy shit, I do have potential. And like watching what I was capable of then was that was really remarkable. And that has been something that I battled going back and forth with like, shit, I wish I had done better, but I just wasn't there because I was living in addiction. Right. Mm -hmm. So my relationship with drugs and alcohol, it was really with drugs when I was younger, like in the like late 90s, we really started out with party drugs, the rave scene. 
I then, you know, through this, like, oh my God, I am not making good on this like sort of idea of success. I need to go to university, panic. And also having to deal with like understanding that I was like daily, like narcotic user. I thought, okay, I'm going to away. I'm going to get into university, which I eventually did. It took me a long time and just completely like geographical cure, right? Mm-hmm. Which we know doesn't work. But when I got to university, as I said, that structure really helped me. And then it was almost as soon as I left university where I was like, all right, I'm going to take you know, some time off and do some fun thing. It was almost immediately. And like, I went through, I started drinking, obviously, at university. And that really started to edge into daily use um, after I graduated from university. And I just remember one very specific day and it hadn't occurred to me before. It was funny. It was like, I actually like just thinking about this. I was going out at night and I was like doing a lot of clubbing and all that sort of stuff. And I was ordering a martini at the bar. And as I went to go reach for the martini, my hand searched. And that was like the first time I was like, uh oh. And then I just, I packaged that up and put that away. Mm-hmm. And then I started to find that I was drinking earlier in the day. And I remember one time I just had this, like, I think it was, I don't know, maybe midday. And I felt like I really needed a drink. And the thought crossed my mind. It was like, well, go take your fucking medicine. Right. And then I was like, mm-hmm. this is where it starts. And I remember that was like, that was just before I left Montreal. And that was the first time the idea of alcoholism sort of crept in. And Montreal is a great once... city to choose, by the way. <laughs> if you want access to drugs and alcohol, I went to university there. Yeah. yeah, it's a great place to hide as an alcoholic, too, because... Yep, I would frequently <laughs> black out in Montreal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Great place to black out. <laughs> but, but yeah, I think once that thought took seed in my mind, it was almost like the guardrails came up. And then I ended up in a bad relationship and, you know, it was that nasty cycle of like drinking, trying to find a job, not being able to find a job, hating myself because I showed up to an interview drunk, knowing that I didn't get the job because I probably smelled like alcohol, but still applying for more jobs because I think I'm qualified for it, not getting the job because I'm drunk and then being sad because I didn't get the job, like just vicious, vicious, right? And this idea too, that like, I don't know, I just have this like thing in my head that like I was, I don't know, I deserved something. And like, I've really been, this idea of deserve to me, that we're owed something. This is the, it's a theme that I have been turning around in my brain, mostly for another reason, which I'm happy to speak about too. And it has to do with having kids and pregnancy loss and all this sort of stuff. But it's this bigger theme because, and I hope you don't mind if I just like, go with this one because like yeah i don't want to i know you had a specific no question. no no and i want to revisit the pregnancy and stuff yeah i mean it I all just, ties together yeah yeah i like i had this shift and i don't know when it happened but i had a shift a while back around thinking i deserve something or thinking that i'm owed something and i think that there is like it goes back to like all right, well, I got this university degree, so I'm owed, I don't know, X, Y, Z. Or I got sober and 
oh, I got this master's degree, so I'm owed X, Y, Z. And those expectations are not actually, like, always falling short of those expectations, I think, had a big impact. And it's been this sort of theme throughout my life. And I feel like this idea that if we bank certain things, whether it be like spiritually or emotionally or professionally or whatever it is that this like effort will equal a result. And when we don't get that, like it's interesting because I've always like thinking about expectation is like I fail because I have an expectation, Mm -hmm. right? The expectation exists within the failure and vice versa. Like, I really struggle with this idea that if I just do these things in a certain way, that there will be an outcome. And I think there's schools of thought that people are like, yes, that's true. There's karma or whatever, right? Like, I just... I've just come to a place where this idea has taken me down so many times. Mm -hmm. And I'm completely responsible for it. And like, I think my hardest lesson, and I'll get into the pregnancy stuff, was was my pregnancy. Because like, I went through some pretty intense stuff during my addiction, obviously. And I went through some stuff getting clean. And I went through stuff like after I graduated from my master's degree and went through very serious depression and questioning all my you know life's choices and then starting this company. And I was like, okay, well, like I've been through the, some of the hardest shit I can do. Like getting clean is very difficult. The thing that I didn't anticipate being so diff- like hard was this trying to get pregnant situation. And how close you sit to pretty consistent grief. And that's a, it's an area of my life that, you know, I'm, I have two kids. We did 11 rounds of IVF, which is a lot. Wow. And I was really good at getting pregnant. I just couldn't stay pregnant. Mm. So that's what I mean when we're like constantly just Grieving. touching great wow in a way that like has really put a lot of fear into me yeah but like hearing that i've done 11 rounds of ivf should tell you all i need to know that i think i deserve something right that i'm owed a baby because i've done all this and for me i think that has been my biggest personal weakness is that idea and I recently let go of it. I don't know how I did it. Rob, no idea how I did it. I think I just got really tired mm. of constantly like doing the same thing over and over. A lot of it had to do with the fact that we finally had our second child a year ago. I mean, that definitely takes the sting out of it. Mm-hmm. But we had just been through so much loss. And it just, I just remember like, it felt so unfair because like we had been through so much pain and loss trying to conceive our first child. 
that the second we thought, great. And we got pregnant like the first time we tried um, through IVF. And both my kids are through an egg donor. So they're biologically related to me. And she was so much harder. And I remember like we got pregnant at 14 weeks, found out that the baby had died. And I just like was racked with this thought of how unfair. Yeah. And also being like, who the fuck do I argue with right now? Like who, who do I yell at for this injustice? Do you, did that direct, do you direct that to, are you, had you ever been spiritual or religious? Like, did you direct that anywhere? You know, in no, like, yes and no. I've never, like, have been hardlined either way. I've always been, like, open to the idea. You know, I think maybe. But not in that way where I can talk to something. But I think what it, oh, this is going to sound a bit nihilistic. But I think what it taught me, and it is this idea of deserve. Because if we think we deserve something, that we have set out a plan, and the universe is going to unfold in the way that a red carpet rolls out because we have done these things that we were told we should do and that like I've been through enough pain that eventually I'm owed a baby like who am I talking to there it is the universe whether I like it or not or a god or like something right like, because I'm negotiating with something mm -hmm. I don't know what that is but if I think I deserve something I'm saying somebody else is responsible for looking at like all of the homework that I've done and giving me a fucking grade on it and being like, yes, Jill has done all of this. Okay. Well, she's been through the grief and loss. She doesn't get to have her own biological children. Here's the threshold of pain that she has to meet before she gets a baby. Cause if we strip it away, that's, basically what I've been asking for. That's the negotiation I wanted to have. Is it enough? So this is the thing that I've been grappling with is like, I don't know. I don't think I am spiritual and I don't think there is some sort of God that is looking and tallying up my pain hmm. because when I look around me, my pain pales in comparison to the pain that other people experience. Don't get pregnant or lose like a baby close to term or an infant or a child. Like, so you go through these things and you think, no, my pain isn't it. Wasn't, it wasn't enough. I am going to be one of those people. There is bottomless pain available to me. And so it gets very like, I really had been grappling, I guess, spiritually with this question is what am I owed? Like, mm -hmm. it was interesting. I like had a conversation with my husband. There was a fantastic series that came out recently. If anybody's listening, who's gone through fertility issues called Retrievals. And it's based on like the, the story is somewhat like secondary to like the bigger picture around women's health and fertility and pain around that and all this stuff there was a really remarkable just one idea is like why do some women like myself put themselves through none of IVF 
through multiple losses and pain, stretch their marriage to the point of breakage, push themselves to the brink of insanity and beyond, all but destroy their bodies through hormones and pregnancies that are lost. And what is it about these women? Why do they do this? Why do they have this tolerance for pain? That's in, the, they, that's in the program that, too? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but it really, for me, it was like I had done all this stuff to my body. Like the needles I put in my body and therapies and procedures and medical trauma and just the scale of loss that we went through. And they just said something like, it's because we're already mothers to those children. Because we're fighting for our kids. Mm. I'm already a mom. I don't have the kids yet. But this is just the process of like how fierce you are for the children that you are going to have. And I said to my husband, I was like, it's so interesting because I've met many women who've gone through IVF and have gone through one round and have said, no more. Mm -hmm. My body can't take it and my marriage can't take it. And we met people who have gone through like two rounds of IVF and ended in divorce. And I just like, I looked at him and I was like, I think they might have been temporarily insane. And he's like, he had this look of relief on his face because he's like, <laughs> I lied you that now. It's like, Jesus Christ. Wow. Wasn't. I mean, the amount of resilience that just like pours out of you when you speak or your presence, like you are. <laughs> Like looking at your whole story that you've talked about in the last 40 minutes is that you have this level of resilience that's like unheard of. It's wild. Thank you for saying that. I'm always reluctant to accept compliments like that because I just feel like I have it so good. Like I am so mindful of, like I think like for me right now, one of the things is watching this, what's unfolding over in Palestine has been yeah. really tough. And I think about all like versions of parents and mothers who are just like trying to figure out how to keep their kids safe. And yeah, all I don't know. I mean, I know it's a bigger picture answer, but I've, I've been ruminating quite heavily on it as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's very tough. Um, so you know, I just like I'm well supported and I. Yeah, I don't quite know what it is. I mean, maybe it's because I thought I deserved something. And maybe that idea of like being deserving or being owed something does create a sense of insanity. And sometimes it works like to your benefit and sometimes to your detriment. Like, I don't well, there's kind of know. this theme of like you pushing yourself to the limit like multiple <laughs> times, not just like... Like you said, you wanted yeah. to go back to school to prove yourself what to prove to yourself what you can do when you were sober. Yeah. And like push yourself to the limit again. Yeah. And I can well, when you were talking about your first undergrad, I can sort of relate because just in the sense where I, I felt at times for me I would like procrastinate and like try to learn a whole course at university like twenty four hours before and like stay up all night and like whatever, that. right? And like that was exciting because like whatever I could do it and but then I'd just yeah. like kick the shit out of myself but then there was this theme emerging that i would like put myself through unnecessary stress all the time and drink a lot and finally like forgive myself learn to forgive myself after i kept feeling so bad about over drinking or things like that but 
yeah, yeah. I, I can relate to that. I mean, it's not, I don't mean to compare it, but just like no, putting no. yourself through this like self-induced stress almost as a test to yourself. Mm-hmm. And like, I, you strike me as someone who's like sort of has this innate level of confidence, at least in maybe some of your abilities or maybe all, but at the same time, you like also strike me as someone who probably kicks the shit out of yourself or you at least used to a lot. Yeah. I do. I really have been. I've had this very big shift in my life. And I think it's because you know, I've had the luxury and the privilege of like having this second child. And like my first, obviously, like that was a just goddamn miracle. And it was just, it was the process of our second that felt so much harder. And we also just had this like finite amount of embryos. And I was just like, well, you can't leave chips on the table for Christ's sake. Like, <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> well, that's the thing. It's like, I was just like, you will regret it, right? Like it'll be one of those things. And like, I remember so funny because it was a period of my where I was like trying to find money, find this run. And it was, I was getting involved with this like loan that I needed. And I was like oh, running around dealing with all of these guy and it was like just an extremely stressful period of the company and it was like time sensitive and I needed it now it also coincided with like my this round of IVF which was like my very last round of IVF after I think we had one embryo left but I was like just so done and I was like I just don't give a fuck anymore I was like these guys are driving me to the point of like breaking and I'm gonna go do this round of IVF and it's not gonna work because I'm just going to be so stressed out about it. And like, but I was like, I'm just going to do it. Like, I don't even know why. Like, why would I have just waited until things were like, but like, I'm also like a spring chicken or anything, right? Like, I had my daughter when I was 42. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was kind of like racing against time. And like, there was just like, there's so much happening. So I did this round by me off. And then the day I tested positive for pregnancy, I tested positive for COVID. Oh my goodness. And I was just like, I didn't even care. I was like, I just need to, like, I'm going to use these embryos and we're going to be done. It's not going to work, but I'm going to walk through the process because I, I just have to. Like, I just have to. The expectation know? at that time, it sounds like. So it's wild. Like, everybody's always like, oh, yeah, you need to be like, so like stress free and all these hormones. And like, I was not stress free. I was like, like, just like half caffeine. And like everything was like, I was just full of stress. Um, so I don't really know, you know like water, all that stuff hold with mm-hmm. like what makes mm-hmm. people fall pregnant or not. But, but yeah, so I don't know where that drive comes from, but I will say that I'm fairly sure it's rooted in fear. And I am trying to not create from a place of fear, but it's very, it's like so deep inside me. Right, because I started off my early life as such a failure, and as somebody who like wanted so badly to succeed. And how much did that come from your own opinion of yourself versus like your parents or like the failure image? I mean, I think it was like my parents didn't help, but you know what? I will say this: my parents always knew I was capable of what I did with that. So, and what I did with my, you know, education and what I did with like all my um, nonprofit work and stuff, they knew. 
this is not like it's almost like frustrating because it's not surprising because mm. like even when i got there they were like well yeah fuck we knew the whole time which i <laughs> just also getting back to missed, level though. ground <laughs> you know? oh expectations so yeah i think that like growing up with an identical twin sister was really challenging we were often in put in competition with each other compared to each other and you get into cycles when you're younger, especially when addiction is involved. It gets to a point where you can't see yourself. It's very hard to break the loop. And it's the self-fulfilling prophecy, which is like, I'm a failure because I can't be a success. And I'll never be a success because I'm a fucking failure. Like, it's just like the dumbest, hardest thing to get out of. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they've even, they've branded it as imposter syndrome. It's a brand now. <laughs> like, and imposter, I mean, yes, but it's just like, join the fucking club. Right. Like, yeah. the thing that I've actually, it's been great. Cause like, I went through a lot of, I've done a lot of therapy. I've done a ton of, like, I was hardcore in 12 step for about eight or nine years. I still really like those programs. I think they're valid and worthy depending on who you are, if it's right for you. Mm -hmm. But, and I owe my life to 12 step program. But I think that there's just like a, I had a, I have a, it's a gift and a curse of like self awareness. And like, I don't know where this shift happened. But I just stopped. I just started to see that like everybody, everybody is fucking operates from fear, right? And whether it comes out as like hyperconfidence or aggression or like toxic positivity, it's fear. And I, I don't want to sound reductive, but everybody just wants to be loved. Mm -hmm. Everybody just wants to be like seen and heard and, and they want to know that they exist. To me, it just boils down to that. Mm -hmm. And like, I think having come through the loss of my business, which was, you know, having gone through pregnancy and then, well, my last trimester and giving birth and like six months of newborn phase was all dragging through this goddamn deal to sell this company. So it was just like a different type of loss. Mm -hmm. It was a very, I feel very fortunate because I came through this like really horrific experience with fertility and gave birth, had a wonderful pregnancy and gave birth, no issues to an absolute blockhead of a baby daughter. Like she's just like a fucking linebacker. I love it. Great. Should we call her blockhead? That is her name. <laughs> she's great. But like she was born and I was like selling this company that I had built and my persona was deeply attached to Fatso. Deeply attached to Fatso. It was this process of like being so in love and proud of myself and my body and my family for getting through this like period of wreckage mm -hmm. and having this beautiful daughter and having so much love for her while also going through absolutely brutal negotiations to get this company I mean brutal and this is all happening at the same time 
right? And like you're dumping hormones and you're doing all this stuff. But like, man, does it give you perspective? Mm. And I'm so grateful that I had her while I was going through this because I think there was a very real possibility that this would have been another moment in my life where I would have lost myself, where I would have, I was owed something. I was building a multi-million dollar company, right? Like we were going to exit at like at least 50 million. Like, for the fuck? I'm owed this. I built this. This was finally the thing that I did really well. It can't end like this. That's not like, that's not the story that I've written. And seeing once again that like, you're not owed anything. Things would pear-shaped. You can fail. It's not a bad word. You can do other things. Like that letting go again, again. I don't know. I think I just found a bottom for them. After all of it. And it's been a really peaceful place to be. Because I think maybe somebody else or somebody with different experiences or a different perspective. I don't know. Maybe all of those like horrific failures and losses and like trying to climb up bullshit, all this stuff. Like the culmination of that was just like, oh, all of that you went through because now you're able to go like, oh, you're owed nothing. You deserve nothing. So fucking stop thinking like this. Because now that I've let that go, I'm just like, there's so much freedom in it. I don't have expectations. I battle them every day. I'm like so scared that I'm like, like not going to, I don't know, win another award. Like, I don't know, add another million to the, the P&L. Like, I'm not going to like come up with a cool new product that people are going to like love me for. Like, I don't know. Like, I still battle with that a little bit. Like, I got a lot of validation from my community around what I built. Yeah. And that like went away over like a day. Well, it didn't go away. Maybe it changed. No, I couldn't keep pursuing that form of validation, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, you said the word perspective and that's what I'm taking in. It's like, wow, you've climbed many mountains. And I'm curious, two things and I start to wrap up. The, you just said you're kind of this place of peace, which is like amazing to hear. And it sounds like you deserve it to me. And also how you feel like you've stri- you strike me as someone who's there's still this desire to fulfill your potential. And I think potential and capabilities just continue to expand. Mm-hmm. And so how do you kind of align this like greater perspective and maybe purpose or maybe more of just, you know, kind of at least understanding where things are in your life at the hierarchy of importance, perhaps? but also mm-hmm. like fulfilling your own potential. Like how do you, how you currently grab with those things? Yeah, I think, you know, I had a bit of a, with Fatso, I had a bit of a template for like building this path to this like ultimate, like filling the ultimate potential. Like I've just become one of those like super like rich founders that like just is like philanthropic and like, oh gosh, like, speaking to her to write a book <laughs> and like I think there was part of me that really thought that's how that was going to turn out mm-hmm. and then I was going to create all this amazing impact and have this platform and I was building this platform 
and the resources to like deploy all of that. And I think there's a real fear in me that I won't leave a lasting impact. And I don't, I constantly remind myself that like impact doesn't have, not everybody has to know about your impact for it to be meaningful. In fact, nobody has to know about it. And like, feel like Fatso put me up in this like hot air balloon and this like grounded gel in this like post Fatso, post infertility battle, post addiction battle is like having to slowly let that air out of it and just be like, hey, the impact is in what you do with your kids. The impact is in like doing stuff with your local community when you have time to do it. It's like infusing passion in your work, even if it's not like I'm doing this big thing. It's about like, how do I support amazing people to do these big things? And so I, now for me, I think I'm like, I feel like I'm almost like trying to like physically turn myself around and be like, somebody said this great thing. They talking about a, another founder, actually. Like he's not a show horse, he's a workhorse. And I was like, I need to start turning myself towards that love of producing amazing things in the world and not being worried about who fucking looks at it, who cares about it, who gets credit for it. And like, I don't want to be that person. I enjoyed it because it came naturally to me. But I need to get to a place or I hope to get to a place where I don't think I need it. And I've really started to tailor down the expectation I have for what it means as I like enter into like, I'm 43, I'm going to be 50 and then golden years. Like I don't, I have time, but like I want to start redefining like what is super important. And I think for me, it's like, I'm okay with not making a whole bunch of money. I just like, I want to leave an impression with my kids. I want to be okay and feel fulfilled through the work that I do. And I just want to get right with like the scale of impact that I think I need to leave. And then what, like, what is actually going to make it? And it goes back to the beginning of our conversation where I realized that like $1,500 to an organization that doesn't get that type of money, I need to go back to them. It's like, it doesn't have to be huge. It doesn't have to be big. And success doesn't mean that everybody has to be looking at Jill and saying Jill's a success. Like, I'm okay with like getting by and like helping my kids and making sure they are focused on leaving a better world behind. And I know this sounds a little woo, but I just think that it's very important work. And I don't know. I just want to take the pressure off. I love that. I want to take the pressure off. And then I think if I can do that, I'm going to have enough groundedness to like say I did enough and like be okay with it for myself. I love that. That's super powerful. I also think that's a great place to wrap up. So I usually ask where can people find you, but I'm not going to let you say because maybe it's not that important. 
but I'll, but, but, but I'll put it I'll put it in the show notes for people so thank you <laughs> thank you so much Jill this was the most powerful conversation I've had to date so thank oh, you for sharing awesome I'm so glad yeah and yeah I really look forward to future conversations with you so thank you yeah definitely anytime all right take care Thank you for listening to this episode of the Actualize podcast. You can find the show notes for this episode, as well as all other episodes at firstsession.com slash podcast. If you like this podcast, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you again, and we'll see you next time.